This is Chasing Encounters, a podcast about stories, languages, cultures, and identities. We highlight diversity and intersectionality in contemporary society through respectful and thought-provoking conversations. Welcome everybody, this is Chasing Encounters, one episode more. Today we have Haman, who's going to tell us about his experience and all things related to education in Iran. Welcome. Uh, hi everybody, hi Oise community and all the audience, and thanks for Yasid for inviting me. Uh, I met uh, Yasid like three weeks ago at the orientations session for our comparative and international uh, collaborative uh, community and we had an exchange and I invited him to the group philosophy group that I'm part of and uh, he came and then uh, I, I always listen to this interview um, sessions that he did and I was interested like to know more about it and uh, now I'm here I'm, I'm sure I'm glad to share my experiences and views so a uh, little bit about my background um, I came to Canada in 2002 and um, at the time, um, the reason that my family emigrated was because uh, they felt that Canada would be a better place for me and for my sister to study and a better place to actually live compared to Iran. Um, and I will delve, I will go into some of the reasons that I feel uh, that's uh, related to Iranian education system uh, later on. So when I came here, um, my English was like, you know, average. Um, I had a good what is it called, reading skills, but my writing skills and speaking skills were not as good as I wanted. Uh, but um, I would say, ironically, I passed the TOEFL at the year that I arrived. And this is a question of like language and literacy. And then I got into university right away. So it was very, very challenging because uh, I felt that my English wasn't uh, enough uh, to handle the university. But uh, for some reason, I was in the system. And um, I uh, finished my bachelor's degree in science. Um, it was challenging, but I felt like um, I struggled, but I kind of eventually got the system right and eventually like graduated. Very good experience at University of Toronto at Scarborough, and my uh, degree was in biology and chemistry, double major. And then, uh, interestingly, in my third year, I did a practicum in a Catholic school in Toronto, and uh, I got more interested in teaching and explored this uh, like career option. And then uh, I applied to the OISE in 2006 and I got in actually. <laughs> and uh, by the time I would say my English was much better, I was more confident. And uh, from my point of view, education is more um, social science. Um, and uh, that's why it was a, like a turn for me from sciences, like from physical sciences. I found that year of experience and learning so valuable and it still resonates within my like teaching career. And then what happened was I, I have been teaching since then 2007 nonstop, like to this day that I'm having this interview, I've taught science classes, um, math classes, geography classes, ESL classes uh, in here and in China. Uh, I spent three years uh, teaching in China, and that was a, a different experience. It was kind of like migrating from another place to another place. So uh, I was displaced again, but uh, I handled it, I would say, pretty decently. Um, and I have my own views of Chinese society and Chinese education, but uh, I will leave it uh, for another um, time. Uh, in terms of um, 
my heritage, I'm coming from Iran. As I said, I lived in Tehran. I was born in Tehran, the capital city. I come from a middle class family, uh, not upper middle class, not lower middle class, but I would say middle class family. Um, so in terms of my positionality, I come from a secular family, even though there are some like religious, like I have some religious relatives, but generally I come from a secular family. And that's why you would see in my argument, I come from a secular perspective, or you can call it a bias, but um, as long as I can bring like good arguments to state my views. Um, and uh, I have been to Iran back two times. Uh, last one was seven years ago, but I'm following Iranian politics, Iranian education very closely. And I will be glad to share today with you and uh, the audience. Yeah. That's a very interesting uh, way to start our conversation today. A couple of things that uh, resonate to my own experience of immigration as well. And I think you relate, and I may want to expand a little bit before we actually get into our topic today, mm -hmm. the idea of family and the idea of Canada as a place to live. So um, this first introductory question is about why choosing Canada as a place to live and not, for example, the United States or Latin America or even Europe, I don't know, France, Norway, Finland, other countries that are out there available. Is there any specific decision that you recall or that you remember that your family mm -hmm. chose specifically Canada and why? Uh, very interesting question. So uh, flashback to 17 years ago, 18 years ago. So my father, he graduated from a university in the United States. And uh, if he could have gone back to the United States, he would have. Because uh, my father, I mean, coming from a leftist background, but uh, um, he uh, kind of found America to be a place that is capitalist, but, you know, at least it has that diversity that, and that, what is it called, uh, space for growth. And uh, he was telling me all the time that he had a lot of, like, Marxist friends who are now university professors, right? And how is it that in America, that is a capitalist country, like, you can have these positions? So he wanted to go back to America, but unfortunately uh, for him, he couldn't. Uh, so he applied to uh, immigration in Australia, and then again he got rejected. And he tried again because he, uh, he's, not, he, he's a bit more extreme than me in a sense that he cannot actually live in Iran. Because of his ideological background and because the leftists were purged in Iran since uh, after the Iranian revolution, so uh, he, he just found the place to be non-habitable. Unfortunately, it's, it's our home, but like for him, right? I'm a bit different. I'm more like a centrist in my views. But uh, so he applied to immigration Canada. And what he did was that he uh, noticed that he cannot get in. So he started to learn French because if you would have that like extra points, mm -hmm. then um, you could have been like what is called eligible. And he took class for a year and a half. And interesting in that interview with the counselor. The counselor didn't ask anything, any French question. So he came in, uh, he, the French, like, what is it called? Qualification was there, but there was no question. So mm. luckily, like, you know, he wasn't asked anything. So we got in. And I still remember that day, that experience. Uh, so in terms of uh, choosing Canada, I would say it was a random, like, uh, what is it called? Like selection by my father. It was just like where, where whatever was left, right? Uh, if he could have gone to Latin America, I would say his ideological uh, and uh, like, what is it called? Like affinity could have been uh, Latin America, but like the language would have been the mm -hmm. issue. Um, and Canada is like, you know, kind of a middle ground, like, um, and you kind of have this in the discourse too, that it's a multicultural country and uh, there's a rule of law. And like, you know, many, it attracts a lot of immigrants. 
whether it's to be true or not, it comes from your personal experience and also personal endeavor and also dealing with all the discriminations or the good things about this system. So I'm not saying all negative because mm. like, you know, mm-hmm. it's like a mix, right? Yeah, it's uh, fascinating to know how language become the gateway for success, especially English and French. And in this podcast, we have talked about this uh, several times with our guests, um, is that idea that because you know English, or in this case, because you know French, it opened the doors for for success and for development, and why not, right? And then, uh, uh, unfortunately for Latin America, like many people don't see the value of Spanish and the Latin American culture as as the culture of the language of success. So I'm not judging on your decision, yeah, yeah, yeah. but in general terms, globally, people prefer to go other places rather than to come to Latin America for those ideal or, or imaginary ideals that uh, English or French equal success. Anyhow, um, I'm going to let you start our conversation today because I know we have an interesting topic and you have an interesting topic, which is education in Iran. So educate us about what's going on in Iran and what has happened over there in terms of education. Uh, okay, thanks a lot. So uh, I represent my views. Um, some Iranian students at OEZ or other parts of the world uh, or even in Iran may disagree with what I say, but that's my point of view. And uh, it's been formulated over the course of years. So uh, firstly, um, Iran uh, of today has 80 million people, 14 million students K-12, and 3.8 million higher education students. So just some uh, background about the statistics of Iran. 87% literacy rate, based on my research, and 91,000 schools in uh, in the country. So um, I want to kind of point out a little bit from the history of education in Iran, from what I've read, and it seems like in like many like um, Asian countries, Middle Eastern countries, where the traditional uh, what is it called religious education, where uh, students were educated uh, by relatives, by the what is it called, by the uh, chiefs, uh, religious chiefs of that region, and madrasa or maktab, like that you have even now in Pakistan, Afghanistan, in these countries, right? And uh, uh, by the turn of the century, around 1907, Iran was one of the first countries in the Middle East that had a constitutional, uh, what is it called, government, constitutional revolution in 1907. And around the time, a lot of Iranian intellectuals, handful of them, they were saying that we need a modern education system and we need to change uh, these social relations because everything was in the hand of family and the relig- religious class. And there was a lot of resistance um, from the part of the clergy because the clergy didn't want to like lose that power and they didn't want to give up because if you give up the control of your, uh, what is it called, like young population, if you give up that control, then uh, it could precipitate later in the politics. So. It was a struggle from 1907, and it still continues today between modernists who view, like, who, who think that education should be modernized, it should be, uh, like, regulated by the state, it should be done, uh, what is it called, like, devoid of any religious affiliation. And on the other hand, you have the religious class that kind of thinks the otherwise. So, um, um, at 1979, we have this pivotal moment in Iranian history where um, the revolution takes place, and as you and many of the audience know, uh, the Western-backed uh, king of Iran was deposed. 
So uh, depends on your historiography, depends on your point of view. Some people call it the people revolution. Some people call it the Islamic revolution. Some people call it like a nationalist. Some people call it the coup d'etat, right? It depends on how you view that. Uh, but it brought a lot of changes to Iranian education, especially what happened was that the uh, regime that came to power they tried to basically reverse everything that Shah did. Hmm. So, and Shah, what he did was that he modernized, right? He made Iranian education secular. And um, okay. to some extent, he was successful. To some extent, he basically, what is it called, got resistance from, what is it called, from the, um, I don't want to say petty bourgeois, but from the lower class, because the lower class had traditional values. And um, the elite who came to power after 1979, they tried to reverse by Islamicize the education, Iranian education system. But to Islamicize the Iranian education system is basically to purge every Iranian education system from Shah's royalist forces and from the leftists, because the leftists were also like, uh, especially like powerful in universities, right? So what they did, they suspended uh, universities for three years. They basically get rid of the education, like uh, universities and all the, what is it called, managements from uh, those, like, what is it called, opposing forces, and they brought their own forces, right? I was born at the time that this was taking place. I was born in 1984, and this was like, what is, I think, the peak of Iranian Cultural Revolution, where mm -hmm. all of these things were happening. So, I remember when I was in uh, elementary school, um, my, uh, what is it called, my vivid memories that, uh, this school looked like, uh, to me, it was a school, but it would look like an ideological space. You get into school and you see on the wall all these graffitis saying mm -hmm. death to America, like these revolutionary slogans that from my point of view right now after all these years, they're all so empty. The reason that they're empty is because I feel the people who actually shouted those or believed in those, they were not really believing in what they were saying. They mm -hmm. were just trying to protect their own position. It wasn't for the interest of their belief that they say those things. It was because they wanted to keep themselves in power. And this is, to me, one of the critique that I have of all these projects of Islamization. It seems to me like it wasn't done for nation, uh, what is it called, for the functionalist point of view of nation building. It was done more for ideological reason to enrich one group against the other, right? Mm. And to basically, basically make the, what is it called, society and make the education system to be, uh, basically to be based on one group of class, one group of people, mm. Mm. Uh, and very different from like Canada and other countries where diversity is respected. So another thing that I would say about Iranian education system is that uh, unlike um, schools in Canada, at the time it was segregated and it still is segregated. Mm. And uh, this is basically on religious grounds, so we don't have co-ed schools in Iran. So right from K-1 to K-12, uh, you know, uh, my interactions were all with male uh, students, right? And uh, until I got to university in Iran, that it basically reversed. But imagine the psychological effect of that, that you are separated from... 50% of your population, right? So you, all of your interaction with opposite sex happens in your uh, relative uh, families or like with like some interactions, like small interactions you have. And this is another critique uh, that I have of Iranian education system. And this is something that Iranian liberals, people who think about a different uh, utopia of Iran, they say that if you want to modernize Iranian education system, we have to remove these barriers. We have to remove like the segregation of sexes in uh, mm. schools in Iran. Mm. So. Um, I actually got through that system and um, to some extent that system was uh, powerful in a sense that like the education that I got and the reason that I've been like what is called successful in science fields and math fields was because of that education so I'm not denying that and I'm crediting that system. 
but uh, many people think that uh, if you graduate from that system, um, you are not going to have as much critical thinking mm -hmm. as you may mm -hmm. have in other educational systems. So it needs some empirical research of what critical thinking is. Because I'm just claiming that some people claim that that system produced people who are having like, what is it called? Like maybe average or lower critical thinking skills or abilities. Um, one example that I can give you, and this may be some, this may be an anecdotal evidence. This may not be an evidence that many people may agree. Uh, recently, like a few days ago, there's a, like an Iranian rap singer. Mm. And this singer, what's, what's the name of uh, his name singer? is Amir, Amir Tatalu. Uh, you can, your audience can check and you can also check. Amir Tatalu. So Amir Tatalu, um, when he raps, uh, he says uh, vulgar things in his lyrics. He's not shy of, and he's in his language. So in Instagram, he called his fan to start posting on what he posted. And he said, if I make, if I, get 10 million, uh, what is it called, like messages, mm -hmm. I will create a song for you guys. Just post 10 millions. I want 10 millions. That's a record in the world now. Right. People, did he get, did he get the he 10 got million? It. He got it, right? Wow. So many Iranian sociologists are thinking the power. the power that this character has, and this character has some affiliation with the Iranian regime, with the Iranian hmm. military. Hmm. I'm not saying that, like, you know, I mean, you can critique that, but like, the idea that he can garner 10 million votes, become a celebrity, and he was a celebrity, I'm not saying, but like he only has 2 million followers in Instagram, and all of a sudden, he break the world record. It tells me that uh, out of that 10 million, let's say half of them were Iranian. What is it that attracts these people to a person like him? That when you listen to his lyrics, at least from my point of view, um, there's not much substance. So, um, and you look at some of our intellectuals, uh, and you may not agree with what they say, but look at their followers and look at like how people like basically like um, read their points of views and try to like analyze their point of views. It seems to me that there's a decline in the level of interest among Iranian in general towards uh, knowledge. And this example, as I said, many people may disagree, but. I feel like the education system that has trained people to think this way, that to value celebrity culture, this is a system that needs to be critiqued. I'm, I'm going from a different angle. So like many countries, I don't know about Colombia, your country, we have entrance exams uh, to go into universities. Many people think that that creates meritocracy, and it does to, most, to some extent. But unfortunately, especially in the past 12 or 10 years, this system has become, uh, uh, from the words of some Iranian educational researcher, a mafia system. In a sense that yeah. instead of training people to think critically about different subjects, it, be it has become a business where people pay money to get education about the questions that are going to be on the test. Hmm. And many people think that this mafia is run somehow by some government affiliates, <laughs> uh, right? And uh, the researcher that I quote from Mr. Hosseini in Iranian uh, university, he teaches in university, he says, I, I, I don't have any power to bring this down. And we call this uh, phenomenon in Iranian concur. Concur is the entrance exam. And we think that instead of like, basically like, what is it called? 
uh, creating a system where like um, uh, students who deserve to be in universities it has gone out of hand and it has turned into like what is it called like a cor- not in a corporate but like a, a mafia business right so this is another critique that a system that doesn't value uh, what is it called like individual success the student the, the system that doesn't basically support a student again I'm bringing back critical thinking right so um, now, let me talk a little bit about um, these neoliberal aspects again. So I was, I, I, thought I did all of my education in public schools in Iran. And I think barely my family paid any money. And based on the Iranian constitution, public schools are, uh, what is it called, mandated. So I've heard news that now even families, regardless of their class, they have to pay money to mm. even register For in public, public schools. Public schools, yeah. And what has happened is that we have a basically uh, outgrowth and mushrooming of private schools in Iran. And I don't have this, this exact statistic, but it seems like it is purely on class-based. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. some of these schools that uh, I can later share some links, uh, even they're in, they're in Farsi, we call them luxury schools in Iran. Right. And who attends these luxury schools? all the like what is it called like friends or like families of these elite religious class that uh, are in power now mm-hmm. and uh, you just have to see the visuals it's just unbelievable that in a country that is under sanction now how can schools like this exist and then it brings back to that idea of new uh, advance of neoliberalism in iran a country that proclaims to be religious a country that proclaimed to bring equality at, at the time of the revolution, look at what it has it turned into. Like it has turned into, as I was saying about concours and this mafia business, it has turned into this discriminatory like system of education where if you have money, you can go to schools. I also like discussed a little bit about the Iranian higher education because um, I quote from this researcher from York University, Dr. Nahid Hosseini, and she brings this very ironical points about Iranian education system. I'm translating from her articles in Farsi. She says Iran is among the uh, 10 countries in the world with the most number of universities. Um, In Turkey, with 79 million people, we have only 200 universities. In Germany, with 81 million people, we have 412 universities. In Egypt, with 91 million people, we have only 77 uh, public universities. China, with 1.4 billion people, has only 23 2,310 universities. Iran, with a population of 81 million, has uh, 2,569 universities. So you're kind of thinking, like, why are these universities needed? Who is creating them? For what purpose? What is it? What is it? What is the purpose? Who is this for? Exactly. So my point of view is that many people think, look at it from an ideological perspective. Maybe maybe they say, okay, the system, the regime wants to bring or train its own cadre, its Mm -hmm. own people. But behind the scene, it's not working. That's the neoliberal mm. factor again. Mm, mm, so mm. there is a, like a system of university, pri- private university in Iran called Azad University. Azad mm. means freedom, ironically. And these universities charge students like hefty money to get like higher education. And what is very interesting about it is that it started with President Rafsanjani, who died or some people said killed like a few years ago. And his idea was that we need to spread higher education to rural areas. And if you go to places in Iran, small cities, you have these universities, Azad universities. But they charge a lot. And many people may question their quality of education that they deliver. And also many people questions like, so 
if these students graduate, is there a job for them? Can they find job? Aren't they going to be, what is it called, like frustrated psychologically, knowing that they have got this education, they spend all of this money, but there's no job for them. And these are all the questions that all the critique that like this uh, researcher from York University, Dr. Uh, Nahid Hosseini brings up in, uh, in her, uh, what is called article. And the article is dated July 4th, 2019, Challenges of Iranian Education System. And she has done comparative work with Turkey. She has done comparative work with other countries. And I can share a link with you. And um, I think, as yes, it can see, there are some English, uh, what is it called? Yeah, like, uh, yeah. sure. So one more thing about the Iranian education system, and then I will discuss a little bit about the resistances that happens in the system. So uh, some of you may be familiar with this uh, 2030 UNESCO educational uh, framework uh, that basically tries to uh, bring some sort of unity and equality among all educational stakeholders in the world. Some, uh, like a set of norms that every country accepts. And one of the key components of it is removing all discriminations based on gender, based on race, based on religion, based on sex, sexual orientation. So uh, Iranian government initially approved that document. President Rouhani gave green light, hmm. even though I'm a critique of him as well. Of course. And eventually it was vetoed by the Supreme Leader. So Supreme Leader's argument is this. Supreme Leader says it's anti-Islamic. It's against our core views and no foreign power has the right to dictate to us what education system our children get okay fair enough if if that's the if that's your argument it's a nationalist religious argument right um and basically they rejected it so my critique of it is that is this the real reason that the Supreme Leader critiquing this document or there are some other motivations? I don't know. And my answer is that I think it's not the case. The reason being is that if you look at some of the things that UNESCO 2030 advocates, for example, it advocates for uh, fair payments to teachers. It advocates for proper training system for uh, educators K to 12. It advocates for increasing the number of um, hours that students have. It, it advocates for deprivatization of education system. It advocates for um, making sure that the budget, educational budget is allocated properly. Are these anti-Islamic? Not from my point of view. Are these anti-Iranian? national interest at 100% uh, not at all so what is he claiming he's claiming that uh, foreign countries cannot dictate to us what our education system can be whereas everything that we say not everything um, the things that I actually the point that I said these are all in the interest of our country and I'm just specifically talking about one point because this is a point that has been raised in Iranian medias in the current budget of Iran uh, Iranian government this year, they have increased the budgets to the religious seminary schools exponentially. I don't have the numbers, unfortunately, because I couldn't find it. But many people are critiquing, why aren't you investing in the public education? Why are you investing so much in the religious education? How many mullahs do you want to train? Why do we want all these mullahs? 
I'm not saying that the country doesn't need because this is part of our social fabric, right? Mm -hmm. But why the money is channeled that way? Why are you bringing Syrian students, Lebanese students, African students, make them Shia, pay from our public money, but you're not investing in all our country? Wow. This is, to me, one of the main, what is it called, like, uh, point of, what is it called, not dissonance, but point of anger, because I feel like the people who run my country, they don't deserve to run my country. They don't have the national interest of my country. <laughs> and it's manifested in education. I'm, I can talk about environment, I can talk about politics, unfortunately, and I speak my, uh, what is it called, Lang- I speak my mind. I'm not afraid if, because I know who they are, they, they will send their agents, but I'm not afraid. <laughs> they send their agents. Yes, yes, that's right. They, they, but, but I'm just saying that this is a critique from my point of view, somebody who was raised there, and as I said, I credited the system to some extent for the meritocracy that, right? And it's very unfortunate that they, the system uh, invested so much in me, but now I'm in Canada. Very briefly, I will talk about the resistances that is happening in the system, in the Iranian education system, because some people uh, may actually like to uh, research this further. So the article that I shared about Iranian Baha'i uh, University with Yesid, and hopefully he can share it with you. Baha'is are religious minorities in Iran, and uh, there are only 300,000 of them, and many of them basically emigrated to other countries. This religion came out of Shiism, and Shiism is like a denomination in Islam that is practiced mostly in Iran. So, uh, uh, like many countries that, what is it called, discriminate against religious minorities, in Iran, the Shia uh, religious elite, they are very, uh, what is it called, afraid of Baha'i, because the Baha'i faith is closest to Shiism in terms of its theology. Right, right. And they know if this, it's not going to happen because they don't have as much inherent, like adherence, but this is like the only theological movement that can challenge Shia orthodoxy. Even Sunnis cannot because Sunni and Shia are different theologically, but uh, Baha'i can't. And I'm not, what is, I'm not Baha'i myself as well, but what is happening recently, and it has been going on for many years. If you're a Baha'i student in Iran, uh, if you get into university through concours, through that entrance exam, mm-hmm. you are disbarred because of your religion. Right. And uh, there are so many other discrimination against Baha'is, but I'm just specifically focusing. So what the Baha'is did, they formed this online universities in like, I, I think 15 years ago. And they recruited a lot of Baha'i educators. And they trained uh, Baha'i students who were basically disenfranchised from Iranian education system. And it was done like uh, what is called the classes were done virtually and the classes were done secretly in the houses of these people in Mashhad, in Tehran, in other cities. And the Iranian uh, education system, the government found out and they tried to shut that down or they tried to basically arrest the people who Mm. the university professors. Right. So uh, as I was trying to formulate from the beginning, this tension between modernity and tradition in Iran, it manifests itself Every iota, every moment of, what is it called? Every moment uh, within the Iranian education system. Uh, Ideology of power versus resistance. And this example of Baha'i University case is a very, very interesting case. I've had some Baha'i friends in Toronto myself. Um, I I didn't talk specifically about education with them because at the time, my interest wasn't in this area. But like they were talking about the discrimination that they went through and I hope that one day in the future of Iran, where it's going to be more democratic, we have education system that recognize all religious, all minorities, and all, uh, what is it called, like um, people who come from different backgrounds. Uh, so 
at the time that I was studying in the secondary level, grade 7 to 12, in our schools we had these um, uh, depart this department called the Moral Education Department. Uh, we say Qismat uh, al in Farsi. And they were kind of like moral police in schools. Mm, they police. were trying to figure out what we do, the personal things we do, and we adhere to their belief system. So one interesting example that I can share is that um, uh, I didn't have a girlfriend, but I had a uh, girl that I was interested in in my <laughs> in my middle school. Sure, sure. And uh, I had a picture of her in my um, wallet. One day, I don't know, out of nowhere, one of the what is it called? Moral police. Moral police came to me, and she was like, he was like, uh, who's this person? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think he, he he may have retired or but like he said, can you show me your wallet? I said, why do you want to see it? He said, I want to see it, like in a very like confrontational way. I said, so I was very afraid. I was like, what, what did I, and I, I never thought about that picture. Right, right. He opened it and he took the picture right away. He wasn't looking for money. So I was shocked. I was like, how does he know? And I never shared that private picture with my friends either. Huh. And he kind of he kind of disciplined me at the time. He was like, "You're too young to like do so this." So you were not supposed to carry your female friend's photographs. Uh, what, what uh, is this about? It's what not is... sanctioned. No, no, it's not that. It's like a, it's codified in the law. But like he was trying to say that like it's against our tradition that if you do that. But, but like there was nothing in the law that I can't carry a picture of. It, mm -hmm. it could have been my sister, right? I could have right. lied, right? Like, right. but like she, he was like, "Why did you do that, right?" And this memory still stays with me mm -hmm. because. Mm -hmm. It just tells me that for somebody who was in grade six or seven or something, right? And I was just trying to explore, you know, at that phase, right? Like, you, you know, you have crushes on like, but like the per this person came and ruined that experience, right? Like, can you imagine like, this is a simple incident I'm talking about, but like yeah, look yeah, at yeah. like nationwide, of course. 13 million people, right? So um, these are some of the memories I have, some of the critiques I have of Iranian education system. And uh, I, I am uh, more like a realist uh, from uh, my, my philosophical, uh, like, what is it called, point of view. So I understand that the system arised from that revolution, and that revolution has many questionable elements and the things that transpired after that. So uh, I hope that, like, through sharing this, my perspective, as I said, many people may critique that, many people yeah. had many, have many sure. different experiences, sure. but... This is my point of view about some aspects of Iranian education system that I've gone through. And my hope that people who listen, or even some people in Iran or some policymakers um, in other countries, they are aware that if you're trying to bring back your epistemology, your ontology to your country, for the purpose of decolonizing your country's education or culture, it cannot be done in a forceful way. Because if it's done in a forceful way, what's happening is that you're changing one ideological rigidity with another ideological rigidity. Mm -hmm. An example of Iran and what have I I've gone through and many of my compatriots went through shows clearly that's a failed project. And I want to say that because many people, like I've, I, I've read some papers in some classes that they are looking for this utopia of decolonized, what is it called, curriculum or like, but with one caveat. And in a sense that that decolonized project, uh, that decolonized textbook curriculum, it must be a plural one. It cannot be one that, what is it called, value one, what is it called, educational like point of view or perspective over the, at the, at the expense of the other. It could say that this is my, uh, what is it called, my, my point of view, but it has to actually acknowledge other perspective, like Baha'i perspective, like Christian perspective, right? 
So I'm very glad Yassid that invited me. And uh, if there are some further questions, I f feel free. Uh, and if not, I will definitely share these links with you, some of them in Farsi. But for those who are interested, they can follow up. No, definitely. Thank you very much for coming today. I just have a couple of wrap-up uh, comments on my own about what you were saying earlier today. Well, first of all, uh, I want our audience to understand that the Chasing Encounters podcast is a space for discussion and learning about not only what I believe is what I believe, but what others believe, and also to try to understand other people's point of view, right? That's, that's, that's what I want to people out to understand. And then the second thing, some of the things that you have said today um, is not necessarily unique to the Iranian context, but I also have heard other friends and people from different parts of the world of this idea of the neoliberal uh, mentality to education, the idea of entrance exams, and the idea of elite or bourgeoisie having access to high quality education. So the question remaining for us out there, uh, for our audience is to understand and try to grapple with and also to problematize what about those who cannot have access to this, right? Like those people from lower classes, for example. It's important to start making uh, the connection, not necessarily to specific contexts, but globally. Like this is happening in Iran and it's happening in other places that I know in Latin America, Asia, South Asia, etc. right? And yeah, I mean, it's important to understand also that there are tensions in between what do we mean by modernity and tradition and how we find that sweet spot in the middle in between what do we mean by tradition and our traditional values and what do we mean by modernity and development, right? I know we don't have an answer and we don't have an answer today, but I want uh, folks out there to start thinking about how is this possible to start questioning. I like uh, Haman was telling us the idea of uh, critically start questioning our systems, our education systems, etc. So, Homan, uh, without any further ado, I just want to thank you for coming today to our Chasing Encounters. So, a couple of words or sentences that you want to finalize today's episode. Yeah. So, yeah, interesting points that you pointed out because even in the classes that I take in OISE, like, for instance, if I want to formulate a research question, every single word you say matters so what you're saying about like understanding what modernity means tradition means finding that balance these are very very valid questions and the reason that i shared this uh, experience with you and with your audience and my views is because of that problematization aspect i want people to think right to think about uh, what i shared what i uh, and then try to think about their own views and for instance like maybe they're thinking about development in one sense they're thinking about re revamping of education system in one sense but now this brought another perspective and they maybe it kind of fired new ideas or few yeah no exactly thank you so much for coming today so some food for thought about questioning our education systems not only in the middle east but everyone else and not stay there doing nothing but questioning problematizing uh, having discussion with friends and peers and actively challenging what uh, we think is not fair or equitable for our folks and the most marginalized peoples out there. Homan, thank you so much for coming today. Have a great rest of the week. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Yesidia.
I was uh, teaching this morning in a school and then I finished and took the TTC and came here. 